This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. Again, I'm the host, David Intricasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss pay-for-performance contracting, specifically do such arrangements, improve care, and reduce spending. With me to discuss the topic is Professor of Population Medicine at the Harvard Medical School and Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare Institute, Steve Sumeray. Stephen, welcome to the program. Thank you. Glad to be here. Professor Sumeray's bio is posted on the podcast website, and his comments are his own. On background, since the passage of the Affordable Care Act in 2012, payers, Medicare, Medicaid, and commercial plans have made increasing efforts to tie care delivery to spending or pay for performance. Medicare's stated goal is by 2018 to tie 50% of traditional fee-for-service Medicare payments to so-called P4P, again, pay-for-performance arrangements, that Medicare terms alternate payment models, or APMs, or moreover, accountable care organizations and bundled payment agreements. In the commercial sector, insurance plans are basing an increasing percent of physician compensation on some mix of meeting quality and patient satisfaction performance metrics and or not exceeding spending or a financial benchmark. There are, of course, variations on this theme. For example, the 1,200 physician Henry Ford Medical Group will by next year tie 50% of primary care salaries to the number of patients who choose Ford physicians as their primary care docs. Specifics aside, all these arrangements are tied to the belief or assumption that financially incenting healthcare providers will improve quality and lower spending growth. Does, however, financially incentive physicians and other clinicians improve the quality of care delivered, patient outcomes, and or lower spending growth? What's the evidence for this? With me to discuss the evidence in support or not of this belief is again Professor Stephen Sumeray. So with that as background introduction, uh, Stephen, let me ask you uh, just what's been your interest or motivation in this topic? Well, I've had uh, an interesting trajectory, I, I feel, in studying quality of care uh, for over three decades now, uh, starting, you know, uh, early on with uh, evaluating the potential of what we call academic detailing or uh, visits um, that are that are not commercial but but uh, resemble a drug company's visit to a physician very brief to reduce inappropriate prescribing rather than sell drugs it worked a long time ago and in some countries they're actually using it countrywide in our country we have such a pluralistic system uh, it's, it's working uh, here and there, especially in uh, big managed care sites. So uh, uh, from there, I, I started to get involved in more of the policy side. And uh, some of the most uh, really rewarding aspects of this were the research we did on, on arbitrary caps on the number of prescriptions that Medicaid patients can get. And this is due to some of the cutbacks uh, uh, during the Reagan administration, actually. But what was important was that we found that we could link with very good quasi-experimental designs 
these cutbacks in vulnerable people like those with mental illnesses or chronically ill elderly to things like hospital and nursing home admissions. And what we found was that that was penny-wise and pound-foolish. Um, the data in three uh, articles in the New England Journal were actually used to um, help uh, provide um, low-income people that were not necessarily in Medicaid subsidies for Medicare Part D. Now, the emphasis is on policy and specifically economic penalties and incentives. I'm also very interested in this aspect of why aren't we using better research design? So we really aren't. Um, the Cochrane, uh, there used to be collaboration, now it's just called Cochrane, I mean, and other systematic reviewers of evidence, they, they, you know, they don't even include in the evidence reviews the weakest designs. And yet, a lot of the designs that are being used in these policies that you're mentioning are the weakest designs. They're not going to even make the evidence reviews. That doesn't make, mean they're not going to have impact. Um, at any rate, uh, economic penalties and incentives, the, the, again, the research designs have not been good in general. Uh, I'm also interested, obviously, how this relates to the non-reproducibility of scientific findings that NIH has been talking about for a long time. Um, do the effects of medical health policies uh, that are not basic to design weaken the credibility of health science among the public, clinicians, Congress, etc.? That's not a good thing right now. And even worse, poorly designed studies combined with uh, exaggerated reporting by the news media, that's not anything new necessarily. I uh, think you can blame, to a certain extent, the public affairs offices of universities. Uh, this can distort the decisions of policymakers, leading them to fund ineffective, costly, or even harmful policies. Okay, thank you. Thank you. So let's go to um, the subject. I briefly described paper performance models, but what would you add to uh, the definition or the meaning of uh, these arrangements? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, there are so many um, t types of paper performance, but uh, they all try to uh, base some um, uh, additional payments or bonuses on the quality of care delivered, not simply the number of services that are provided. This is really key because actually it sounds great. And a lot of people believe that it has to work because it's an either-or situation between fee-for-service and uh, this kind of a system, and that's not really true because uh, there are two policies, both of which could be bad or good. Um, and there are other things that are similar to pay for performance, like not paying for preventable hospital infections, mm -hmm. which I'm going to refer to later, um, readmission penalties, penalties. Right. wellness Oh my God! Wellness penalties are really big now. That that's not that. Those are penalties to patients, right? Mm -hmm. And I think what's interesting about that is that that is now being applied to these genetic uh, testing requirements, which is now in the news. Uh, yes, the House uh, just moved a bill on this. Yes. Yes, mm -hmm. exactly. It's really, uh, in my view, it's it's not a way to go. I don't, I don't, you know, personally, I don't think. 
genetic information should be available to my employer. Mm-hmm. You know, what if I have Huntington's disease? And who knows what the employer will do? At any rate, you see what I'm saying. I, I really think it's more important to think about incentives and penalties for uh, the purpose of trying to improve quality or reduce costs. And some of them uh, might make sense um, when you think about it without the evidence that others don't make sense on the face of it. So Okay, let, let's go to the evidence. And you published uh, an article in a CDC publication last June. Uh, and then again, you've had related publications in various media outlets. More recently, you summarized research that shows pay-for-performance agreements have not demonstrated success. That is, there's no convincing evidence care quality increased or improved comparatively faster under P4P models. So what? let's get to the heart of this. What's your understanding of the evidence in support or not of P4P? Yeah, I, mean, you know, <clears throat> I guess uh, our, C- our CDC paper that was a peer-reviewed paper um, in, uh, what is it, about a year and a half ago, and then also the uh, one in June, which was specifically in pay, pay for performance. There, there are two papers in a series, and the Vox paper, which actually summarizes the CDC mm-hmm. in a more op-ed style. I actually, uh, it, it's great because they allowed us to put in some of the graphs, which you don't usually see. At any rate, when you look at this evidence including the systematic reviews and the randomized trials and the the best of the quasi-experiments that, you know, have control groups and a before and after and, you know, or a time series. They have, you know, they know the trends before and did the trend change. When you look at the best studies, it's difficult for us to say that they work, at least in the U.S. and Europe. Early studies of Britain's nationwide pay-for-performance program in the New England Journal of Medicine and the British Journal of General Practice appeared really promising. And they claim that such programs improve patient care and health. But that research was debunked later. Even interestingly, I have heard um, that the senior author feels that the early research was misleading. They didn't use minimally acceptable research designs. And this is what I always come back to. You can't um, uh, fix by analysis what you bungled by design. It's a famous quote of some statisticians, actually, which I find interesting. So they didn't account for improvements in healthcare and health trends that were already occurring. Think about it as a pencil going to the data before the intervention. What is the direction? Is it down, is it up, or is it flat? If, if you don't know that, uh, you know, or if you have a control group, that will help you too, but let's say you don't even know that, you don't know what would have happened in the absence of the intervention, and therefore, when the intervention appears, you don't know anything about its effect. This is called history bias. Mm-hmm. Now, these studies had problems. You know, one or two observations before a policy can't tell you if practice was already improving. These types of improvements could be due to better technology. It could be ongoing advances in medicine. 
national CME programs. There's so much going on in medical care. Quite frankly, I've looked at so many studies that I have to say that, you know, generally when you look, things are getting a little bit better usually, right? Mm -hmm. So if you don't control for that, getting a little bit better, and you put an intervention in place, well, it will keep getting better. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, 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 the problem is that these studies actually uh, said that the policies improved outcomes, but the outcomes were already improving. We know this. Hospital deaths, for example, have been going down for decades. Mm-hmm. So... Subsequent, stronger studies of paper performance that control for history bias consistently overturned these, what we call false hopes. Uh, several worldwide systematic reviews, some done, done by Cochrane, found that not only was there little evidence supporting the effects of paper performance on quality, but also that such programs sometimes even discourage doctors from treating very sick patients. Now, if doctors pick the healthiest patients to treat, mm-hmm. it can make their outcomes look better, and they get more incentive payments. I'm not saying that most doctors will do this, but some do, and, and there have been some. There's some evidence in these systematic reviews uh, of this kind of thing. This kind of gaming occurs more often with incentive penalty approaches um, than other approaches to improving quality. And it makes sense because, you know, you're talking about economic incentives. Um, And this has been found in the other kinds of uh, incentive penalty approaches I mentioned, like like the uh, preventing hospital infections we wrote in the New England Journal of Medicine and many other studies that this caused doctors to change the codes at admission so it looked like they had a pre-existing infection. Mm-hmm. What that does is they're not going to get dinged e- economically for the hospital-caused infection. So I'm not minimizing this problem, but um, when, you, when you impose these incentives and penalties, very often you get gaming. And and I, I don't want to go on, but you know, there are many incident penalties that cause this. And yet, this approach continues to be a big part of Medicaid, Medicare, and many health plans, costing tens of billions of dollars. So I'll I'll, I'll end there. I you know. Just... So I, I you know you're right you're right on point with the gaming, the unintended negative consequence. I'll note that um, in the Medicare bundled payment demonstration that started in 11 with uh, BPCI 48 DRGs. There was research recently uh, from evaluators at CMS showing that uh, you might see more volume for these hips and knees, particularly uh, replacement surgeries, because they're picking healthier patients, they're more likely to succeed under the bundled payment arrangement, and not only that, but you actually might see greater volume. So while you might be saving on the 90-day episode, uh, in each instance, you're just driving the number of instances, which is to say you're not, in some, uh, reducing spending growth. Um, 
and this was a concern Elliot Fisher exp uh, expressed. It's uh, continuing to be studied, but that is a, a, a substantial concern. You did mention earlier uh, maybe the better way of proceeding would be uh, fewer penalties and more incentives. So uh, relative to what would be an alternative uh, policy to drive improved value, uh, what could you suggest uh, that might be a, a better, more productive way to go? I, I you know, you know, there's, uh, you know, one thing. It's, it's also another quote. You know, in a way, a lot of people have said this. Uh, I mean, most things don't work. <laughs> most <laughs> things that we try fail. But what I want to say here is that. Um, over the last uh, decade or so, there have been uh, a series of studies that have tried to better understand why uh, patients are readmitted. In other words, why they get sick again, especially you know the frail elderly and others. And there have been um, a number of randomized controlled trials. Not that I think that that's always the uh, always necessary. But um, in this case, it you know provided you know good evidence. They were able to do these randomized trials, showing that a team that might include doctors, nurses, pharmacists, sometimes social workers, they will meet with a patient um, before their discharge, uh, a vulnerable elderly patient, for example, and go over all of the things they might have many new drugs, for example. Um, then there is often a contact, sometimes in person, at least by telephone, um, with the patient at home. And they, they try to go over problems that the patients have. For example, again, with drugs, uh, it's often the case that they're not adhering. I mean, adherence to drugs is abysmal, as you mm -hmm. know. And so they, they try to provide them with the best tools, information, etc to take their drugs consistently and other uh, other ways of trying to prevent another hospitalization. And uh, the, the uh, studies were successful. They, they actually reduced hospital readmissions. And I think it's partly because it was targeted to specific patient clinical needs. That's an example of something that is very effective and based on good evidence. Mm -hmm. I don't honestly know the extent to which this particular intervention has diffused widely. Uh, it should. Uh, I, I think it's better, quite frankly, than some of these incentive penalty approaches that are just broad scale, uh, not really focused on particular health problems even, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. If you look at macro, well, macro um, is, is a lot of different problems, and each physician only has, I think, about a half a dozen Correct. Yes. criteria. Six. Yeah, and uh, that uh, talk about gaming that that can really um, hurt things. But I just wanted to make the contrast here of a more behaviorally oriented, targeted intervention that goes after people who are high cost and, you know, could benefit from better quality care. So you're suggesting certainly then that when these 
designs are employed, they be highly specific and focused on patients that have specific known, say, let's say, vulnerabilities. Would that be accurate? Yes. I, I, you know, I, I'm not going to uh, completely um, deny the possibility that some generalized interventions work, too. Mm-hmm. I, I do think that targeting, you know, sort of the needs of a population um, so that, you know, you know that the intervention is targeting the needs. You're not just assuming, for example, that an economic intervention is going to work. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, that's that that's the basic Okay. Issue here. But, but you know, for example, you know there are there have been it's been mixed evidence, but you know this whole feedback, you know, feeding back something about physicians prescribing patterns and comparing with peers. Mm-hmm. Some of those studies have have shown success. Uh, I don't know quite as much about them. I know that the systematic reviews say that there it's more mixed evidence. But um, you know, if if something like that can work, you know, given um, the data uh, that that's a little bit less oriented to targeting, although they are targeting specific, more specific classes of drugs. Let's say, mm-hmm. and they should be, you know, communicating what they know based on focus group interviews, qualitative data about why physicians are um, not prescribing these drugs appropriately. Mm-hmm. Let me let me ask as a going out question here. It was recently reported that, and this is uh, an organization swinging in the entirely other opposite direction, and that's Geisinger, the 12 hospital integrated system out of Pennsylvania. They're moving by this summer to pay all their physicians, all 1,600, a straight salary. And they were one of the first to actually, um, in the U.S., particularly at a large scale, and sent their physicians. So their experience didn't demonstrate, it appears, or prove out, and they're now going back to uh, where they were previously, and that is going back to paying uh, straight salaries. And that's to suggest, and this is the sort of the counter-argument you always hear about P4P, is aren't physicians motivated intrinsically and uh, sufficiently to provide the best care they can, uh, and therefore, you know, the the, the, the idea theory that some economic or financial bonus will motivate them is, is just a false assumption. Oh, okay. Um, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not against the, this at all. Uh, I mean, basically that's the British model and, and mm-hmm. it's also the Kaiser model, right? Right. And they're doing pretty well. And, uh, I think it's very different from the kinds of P4P sort of laid on to a fee-for-service system that we have, mm-hmm. right? In this sense, it's it's also more like the old HMO, right? Right. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think to a great extent, a lot of those systems work pretty well, and I see them as more of a... Uh, a reform in the entire system of medical care um, that is is I, I don't see it in the same way as this incentives and penalties for at the margin you know at the specific things while you're also paying uh, people uh, fee for service so I I applaud that I, I, I think it would, I'm, I'm sure they're going to look at it. 
and and, and see. They already been. I haven't seen the reports yet on how it's affecting medical care, mm-hmm. cost okay. and quality. But um, I, I don't. I don't see that uh, as anything against what I've said about the way pay for performance has been used. The only thing um, I will say is that in Britain, where they pay physicians by salary, right? Mm-hmm. right? The government pays their salary. Pay for performance on top of that for specific quality criteria did not work. There are many studies. I mean, if you want to look at the, some of the best data, are actually uh, Brian Saramaga. It's actually in that Fox report. Mm-hmm. It just shows a straight line on it. Everything you got to go back to the article with many different outcome measures, many different quality measures. Even tried to look for things that you know maybe doctors might have done that weren't exactly the criteria, like adding another antihypertensive drug to improve hypertension control. Then everything was a straight line. Everything was getting a little better at baseline, mm-hmm. but there was absolutely no change. So what this, I guess, what this says to me is that salary, I, I, some of the best systems I know have used salary for, for physicians, but that does not mean pay for performance will work within that system. Okay, okay. The way I describe it, because England is the best example of that. Right, and they've been doing this for a while, so yeah. they have some very good evidence. So with that, Stephen, we're at our time boundary, so I want to say thank you very much for this important discussion I'm very appreciative. Okay. Thank you. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.